Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Looking up, as the U.S. economy continues to grow, the Fed signals it's nearing an end to hikes, and big tech comes back in a big way. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, former White House economist Laura Tyson on why the Fed just may have an ace up its sleeve. He thinks this time uh, we can engineer, he can engineer a soft landing. Ralph Schlossstein of Evercore on how dealmakers are getting ready for the next surge. We're certainly beginning to see uh, a significantly greater amount of activity. And Darren Williams of Southern Bancorp on the continuing shakeup in the ranks of regional banks. The particular merger between PacWest and and Bank of California, that made sense probably for them. It seems that that's going to be a stronger uh, institution. There were some puts and takes, but overall, Global Wall Street had a pretty good week. Big tech seems to be back on track with strong earnings reports from Alphabet setting up a move for Ruth Porat up to president and chief investment officer. So she's going to be CFO up until September the 1st. But this has got this newly created role that yeah. is going to be the CIO and president. And she's going to remain with the business until they find a successor. And then Meta reported more users, more advertising revenue, and promises of even better yet to come. 
we're really excited about what we think that this is going to bring to bear for the consumer experience and, of course, also eventually for businesses to connect with consumers across the family of apps, too. UPS had a somewhat different moment in the sun when the union representing UPS drivers reached a tentative deal to avoid a strike. And Teamsters chief Sean O'Brien wasted no time in saying he's eager to move on to Amazon. Amazon's definitely going to be a target uh, to organize. We're going to take this historic agreement uh, and use it as a template to show the Amazon workers uh, what they will receive when they join the Teamsters Union and we organize them. Things were a bit rockier for President Xi over in China, who removed Foreign Minister Qin Gang after only seven months in office and brought back his predecessor, Wang Yi. I think Wang Yi's going nowhere. And then there was the case of British real estate magnate Joe Lewis, arraigned in a Manhattan court for allegedly giving illegal stock tips to the staff on his super yacht, his private jet pilots, and his girlfriends. But the big one this week was the Fed's much-awaited July decision, which brought another 25 basis points in rate increases, which surprised no one, but left open the possibility it may be done, or nearly done, with tightening. It's really a question of how do you balance the two risks, the risk of doing too much or doing too little. And, you know, we, I would say that, um, you know, we're coming to a place where, where there really are risks on both sides. It's hard to say exactly whether, whether they're in balance or not. But as our, as our stances become more restrictive we, and inflation moderates, we do increasingly face that risk. As the odds for that soft landing seemed to increase, the U.S. economy came in significantly stronger than expected, and inflation continued to ease. It's a better-than-expected GDP report for the second quarter. This is going to have uh, the Fed changing some of its forecast. And if all that weren't enough, at the end of the week, the Bank of Japan shook global bond markets by saying its ceiling for 10-year JGBs will now be a reference point rather than a fixed ceiling. For all the drama, bond markets ended the week relatively calm as the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury spiked to over four on the BOJ News on Thursday, but then settled back down to 3.94. Stocks, meanwhile, were all about the Fed and the strong economic numbers, with the S&P 500 up 1% on the week powered in part by earnings per share coming in so far in an average of $223, compared with the Bloomberg Elves' expectation of $213 for year-end. The Nasdaq once again outperformed the S&P, up just over 2% for the week, to give us his take on what we are seeing. Welcome back now, Greg Peters. He is PGM co-CIO for Fixed Income. Greg, great to have you back on Ball Street Week here. It really was sort of a bond week, if I can put it that way. Fixed income is your kind of week. First start with the Fed. What did we hear from the Fed? What did you hear from the Fed? What does it mean for the bond markets? Yeah, so the Fed is uh, kind of dancing along the nice edge here. Uh, inflation is, you know, much more under control uh, than where we were a year ago. So we're moving in the right direction, but it's far from uh, declaring victory. Uh, and so they're very open to being data dependent and somewhat ambiguous. And what's really unique about this cycle, David, is that the markets are embracing that ambiguity. Typically, uh, that is a vol producer, but in this case, 
is having the uh, opposite effect. So uh, the the Fed is doing somewhat of a masterclass here on on uh, you know dampening market concerns, which I think is uh, important, of course. So, Greg, what are the bond markets telling us, if anything, about the likelihood of a recession? Because on the one hand, we got really strong economic numbers this this week, surprised a lot of people. We don't see a lot of weakness in the market. At the same time, as I understand, we still are pricing in price cu- uh, r- rate cuts coming up next year. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that the bond market's been wrong now for uh, a better part of a year or so. So the curve has been inverted. Uh, that typically uh, suggests that a recession is imminent. Uh, this has been the most forecasted recession that hasn't come about yet. Um, so I think uh, you know the economy, the nominal part of the economy, uh, GDP has been quite robust and quite strong. And I think that's surprised a lot of pundits. Um, uh, that's the first thing. But what's curious in the market as well is the fact that we're still seeing rate cuts priced in. So investors are quite bullish around the outlook. Um, you know, risk assets are you know, taking off and doing quite well. But you're still seeing back-end uh, rate cuts being priced in. And to us, we just see that as incongruent. You can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't have a situation where risk assets do really well and the Fed is cutting because of economic weakness. So you have to choose a side. And I think uh, there's some confusion here on that front. Greg, what does that tell you as a bond investor? Uh, where do you invest, if at all, right? now? Is this a good time to get fixed income? And if so, what parts of fixed income? Yes. So I actually think it's a great time to be in fixed income. And it's a very simple premise. And that is the income piece uh, and the yield piece. So yields are much higher than where we were a year, two years ago. I think that is a fantastic starting point. So the income producing nature of fixed income uh, really starts to assert itself. Uh, where, where we see value is twofold. One is leaning against those rate cuts. So we think the hurdle for the Fed to raise interest rates uh, or I'm sorry, cut interest rates is really quite high. Uh, even if there's a tweak, what's being priced in is too much um, in our mind. So we see value being kind of short uh, uh, yields here, at least in the front end. Uh, and we see a lot of value in high quality assets within fixed income. So no longer do you have to reach out the risk curve in order to achieve those income goals and targets. So we think it's a great uh, time to invest in fixed income uh, where you get a lot of safe carry uh, uh, and uh, really kind of good earnings along the way. So uh, high quality fixed income, are you being compensated for the risk when it comes to high yield or leverage loans? I think that's where it's a little more tricky, David. I, I look at or we look at you know the parts of the high yield market. We look at the levered loan market. We look at the private credit market uh, and really question whether you're being appropriately compensated for the risks there. So these are still you know, highly levered entities. There's been a lot of leverage added to capital structures over the past decade or so, kind of feasting off the of low interest rates. But as those uh, interest costs continue to kind of reset higher, right, as the cheaper debt rolls off into more expensive debt, I think that puts a lot more pressure uh, on these companies in that segment of the market. And even without a recession, I think you'll have a, a, a higher default experience than what we've uh, observed over the past just called five, seven years. Greg, we can't let you go without talking about what happened with the Bank of Japan, because it shook a lot of people when that report came out Thursday afternoon. There was a lot of move in the markets, actually, at the time, at least for a short period of time. What did you make out of what happened, and does it have long-lasting effects? 
I think it's too early to tell. So it was, you know, in the price over the past couple of days or so. But either way, 10-year JGBs kind of jumped 10 basis points, which is a pretty big move in that market. Uh, but essentially, the Bank of Japan is drafting off of other global central banks. So we'll see. So uh, they have this last mover advantage. Um, uh, and, and so a lot of the, the tightening has kind of happened away from them. And so they're just catching up. But but I think it's a rationalization that's finally occurring in uh, uh, in the Japanese markets. But I think it's a long ways to go. So, uh, you know, our strong sense is yields will continue to move higher uh, in Japan, but uh, in Japan, test that one percent uh, threshold. Uh, uh, but we're finally starting to see some movement uh, uh, out of the Bank of Japan, who's been stuck very much in this this uh, highly accommodative stance for a very long time. Many thanks now, Greg. Always great to have you with us. That's Greg Peters of PGM. Coming up, we're going to go over what the Fed told us and also what it left unsaid with economist Laura Tyson of the Berkeley Haas School of Business. And then next week, we're going to take you to Aspen for a special edition of Wall Street Week from the Aspen Economic Strategy Group's annual meeting. We'll sit down with former Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee, and more. Only on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The Fed spoke again this week and raised interest rates again, this time by 25 basis points, hoping it is doing enough to deal with inflation, but not too much, a risk that isn't new for the Fed, as Louis Ruckheiser described on Wall Street Week back in July of 2001, back in the days of Alan Greenspan. 
Fed chairman misread the economy's signals so embarrassingly in 1999 and 2000 that he was raising interest rates to guard against inflation when he should have been lowering them to guard against what has proved to be the biggest economic collapse in a decade. To take us through the risks facing this Fed and this Fed chair in 2023, we welcome back Laura Tyson, professor at the Berkeley Haas School of Business. Dr. Tyson served both as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors and as director of the National Economic Council under President Clinton. So Dr. Tyson, thank you so much for being back with us. So a lot that we heard from the Fed and from Chair Powell was not a big surprise. Was there anything you found surprising? Really surprising, but but forward-looking or going out a little bit to say, uh, for a variety of reasons, he thinks this time uh, we can engineer, he can engineer a soft landing. He noted that that's very rare, but he did talk about the fact that we have an economy which is stronger than expected, stronger than expected. His own um, Fed forecasters have taken out a recession uh, for this year and put in stronger growth. But he noted also we have inflation coming down, we have uh, quits coming down, we have job openings coming down, we have a kind of sense that the labor market may be easing without creating unemployment and that growth may still be strong. And that would be a soft landing. Well, and underscore what you're saying, Dr. Tyson, the day after the Fed's decision, we got GDP numbers out that really were substantially stronger than we expected, indicating the economy is doing quite well. At the same time, we've raised interest rates a lot at this point, <laughs> a lot in a very short period of time. How do you account for the fact we don't have more unemployment? Because a lot of people, I think, predicted that if you raise interest rates that, that high, that fast, you're going to have higher unemployment. We do know that consumers continue to be a spend out of their savings. They continue uh, to create strong demand for output, both services now and increasingly products. And uh, Pal mentioned that yesterday, the importance of the shifting of spending back towards goods because uh, that way you can ease some of the inflationary pressures on the services side. And on the goods side, as he pointed out, the supply chain is really quite strong now. There's a lot of supply. So the demand for consumer goods and the shift in consumer goods, important. Um, he mentioned um, investment as well. And I think there, uh, the change in technology, the, the artificial intelligence breakthroughs, and the rush by firms to, to figure out a way to invest in that technology, that's boosting investment. So you have uh, sources of demand at home, consumption and investment demand, stronger and that's what's keeping the economy going. Um, certain interest rate sectors, uh, housing, uh, you don't see that strength, obviously, but for a variety of reasons, demand remains strong. Uh, artificial intelligence is all the rage these days, at least to talk about. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're seeing it show up yet, uh, but there are some yes. who really speculate it could have a significant effect on productivity. Uh, do you expect yes. that it may have that effect? And if so, how long does that take to, have, uh, to really show up in the numbers? So one of the interesting omissions yesterday uh, in the discussion of Chairman Powell, and this is a standard omission because Fed chairs don't talk a lot about productivity, but if you're thinking about uh, inflation and you're thinking about, well, is our wages going up, is that going to drive inflation up further? There's an intermediate 
variable there. That is wages, productivity growth, and prices. If productivity growth picks up, and you have uh, that allows for stronger wage growth without an effect on price growth. So productivity is really important. It is very hard to predict. I have to smile at the fact that you uh, started with 2000. The Federal Reserve, uh, Chairman Greenspan, President Clinton, um, were absolutely surprised by the strength of productivity growth. No, no one predicted it. And there was a very significant uptick in productivity growth associated with the rollout, the very rapid rollout of internet, internet technology, which really occurred from the late 1990s. So you had a decade of much stronger, percentage point stronger growth rate in productivity. And that changed the inflation outlook. It changed the course of monetary policy. Uh, so I think about today. And uh, I would say, perhaps because I mostly spend my time in Northern California, but there are uh, a number of scholars, for example, McKinsey Global Institute just did something on this, looking at uh, how AI is affecting already productivity uh, in major business functions, in sales functions, in accounting functions, in major sectors of the economy like finance. Um, so it's already looking to generate a productivity burst. Uh, so, Dr. Tyson, you were there in the White House when the Internet phenomenon was really taking hold. As an economist, yes. so often the economic numbers are backward-looking. How long did it take you to see that productivity increase in the numbers? How long did it take you to figure out this is actually what's going on? Well, we saw the numbers pretty quickly. We were surprised at the numbers. I, I, I want to say I... I oftentimes tell the story that I used to brief uh, President Clinton regularly on uh, the outlook for the uh, deficit. And that depended very much on the outlook for economic growth. And that depended very much on the outlook for productivity growth. And I used to give him the pretty standard economist answers that productivity growth was likely to remain slow, we, we shouldn't expect a significant change, we needed to be cautious, uh, and we therefore were constantly surprised at the extent of the productivity gains. And they really started to come in early. The artificial intelligence revolution is going to be as significant as the internet revolution. It's actually probably going to be more significant than that. And the question, therefore, becomes how fast will the effects be felt? A very good positive indicator here is that in some sectors which are early adopters, you already see some amazing productivity gains. In some of the work being done by economists, uh, you see, uh, use, you know, there are cases where they'll sort of look at the application of AI to a call center and see how much the productivity of each call center worker increases. And it's not just the quantity, that's the productivity number, but the quality. They do better job and the customers like it more. So I think we've got a lot pieces of evidence all around that this productivity effect is going to be large and it's going to be quick. But 
very we we do not have good economic models to make this prediction. So we have to look at. I've been you know I heard yesterday a lot of companies. So even though the interest rate is high, the cost of capital is high, credit conditions are restrictive. Companies are rushing out to invest hmm. in this technology because they realize it's maybe signaling a fundamental change. So the long term, you have to look at your investment decisions now for the long term. Yeah, but not a certainty, but something we could certainly hope for. Thank you so much, Doctor. It's always Professor, a pleasure having you on you. Wall Street Week. That is Professor Laura Tyson of the Haas School of Business at Berkeley University. Coming up, those higher rates brought deal-making almost to a halt. But there are some indications now that things may be coming back soon. We'll ask Ralph Schlossstein of Evercore. Certainly the amount of dialogue among our clients is up quite dramatically, and our backlogs are up. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Mergers and acquisitions, they make the investment bankers world go round. And just two short years ago, it was going around pretty fast when a record $3.8 trillion worth of deals were done in 2021. We are continuing to see just tremendous momentum in US m and But then inflation came along and the Fed decided it had to raise interest rates fast to get things under control, leading to all sorts of uncertainty. In terms of our own business, oh yes, it has a big effect because when, when the volatility is so high, and the, the VIX this morning was 32 and a half, I think, before the day started, um, people hesitate. They want to 
step back and wait for the smoke to clear and the environment to settle. And so transactions slow down. There's no doubt about it. All of which took that $3.8 trillion in deals in 2021 all the way down to $2.6 trillion last year. And the pace this year so far is down another 40% from that. But now markets think we may be nearing the end of those rate hikes, leading some people like Michael Che of Blackstone to think the deals are about to come back. I think market participants are now you know, seeing that we're nearing the end of this dramatic uh, rate increase cycle uh, and therefore feeling like there's a little less uncertainty, a little more certainty, uh, and are readier to transact. Though Betsy Grasek of Morgan Stanley says it may be next year before we really see mergers and acquisitions get their mojo back. We are you know, one of those who is looking for an acceleration in deal activity as we go into next year. Part of the reason is understanding what the terminal rate is in rate hikes. And to bring us up to speed on exactly where we are in mergers and acquisitions, we turn to a true authority. He's Ralph Schlossstein. He is Chairman Emeritus of Evercore. Ralph, thanks so much for being back on Wall Street Week. We hear a lot about the fact that M&A dropped off, as we know, from those record numbers back in 21. Are, are they coming back? I, we're certainly beginning to see uh, a significant a greater amount of activity. It hasn't manifested itself yet in announced transactions, but announced uh, M&A for the first six months of the year was down, the dollar volume was down 40%. Uh, I don't expect it will be quite as bad uh, in the second half of the year, uh, but certainly the amount of dialogue among our clients is up quite dramatically and our backlogs are up. A big change from 21, for example, is interest rates. Yes. I mean, the Fed has been adding interest rate basis points as fast as it could. How does that change the nature of M&A going forward? I mean, are they going to look different, the deals that you do? Well, it does. It uh, unquestionably affects the amount of leverage that you can put on a transaction. Uh, and that, of course, affects the private equity firms, uh, particularly not as much uh, industrial uh, companies because they're all or many of them are uh, investment grade uh, rated. Uh, and, you know, the ultimately uh, the banks or the lenders, which are increasingly non-bank, uh, you know, calculate how much debt a company can support uh, by, you know, some measure of interest coverage. So when rates are up, uh, that limits somewhat uh, the amount of uh, debt uh, that, a that a private equity firm can put on a company. However, they also look at the way a mortgage is done. You know, what's the amount of loan to value, a traditional loan to value analysis. And that doesn't really change that much. So it's a balancing act between interest coverage and the fact uh, the loan to value analysis. You mentioned private, particularly private credit. To what extent is private credit really taking up the slack right now, particularly as banks feel they may need to pull back some? Well, there was a period probably five, six months ago when uh, almost all leveraged loans, all leveraged uh, buyout transactions were financed by private credit. Uh, and by the way, that's not a terrible thing uh, because uh, they're separated from the deposit uh, insurance function. Uh, and so that's taking actually credit risk out of the banking uh, system. Uh, so there's probably, uh, you know, a trillion dollars of uh, private credit balance sheet 
uh, out there. And so that's become a significant competitor uh, for the banks, but uh, that's probably a healthy thing for the financial system. What is the shakeup, if I can put it that way, in M&A doing to the investment banking business itself? Because we saw Credit Suisse now is really obviously yes. essentially pulling out of the business entirely. Goldman Sachs has been laying off uh, bankers. Uh, is it changing the personnel situation for a place like Evercore? Well, the interesting thing is that so uh, advisory, you know, M&A restructuring, but M&A obviously being the biggest part of it, uh, is almost our only business. We have a research business and we have an underwriting business, but at their peak, they were maybe 14, 15% of our revenue. So the vast majority of our revenues come from advisory. Uh, Goldman Sachs, which has the largest advisory business, advisory is about 5% of their revenues. Mm. Uh, so it's the most prestigious part of their business, uh, but it's not something that dramatically affects, uh, you know, the profitability of the business. Although when you put it together with equity underwriting and debt underwriting and other things, uh, that's not great for Goldman Sachs. In terms of our business, uh, it you know we're our growth comes from adding. A-plus and A-talent, and we just announced our earnings yesterday. Uh, We've had a record number of uh, very, very talented, what we call senior managing directors, which is our most senior title, uh, join us or commit to join us in the first half of the year. So disruption in the large firms uh, you know, causes people to stick up their head and say, gee, do I want to be in a place where what I do is the core business of the company rather than, uh, you know, five or seven percent of revenues? And in the case of places like, you know, J.P. Morgan and B of A, they're so big, uh, still important, still prestigious, uh, but it's a very small part of their revenues. Let's talk about regulation for a second. Uh, there's a lot of talk, has been since the beginning of the Biden administration, about antitrust enforcement. And now we've just had uh, new proposed merger guidelines come out, which are decidedly more restrictive, particularly involving uh, private equity, potentially. Uh, how much of a chilling effect is that having on businesses as they think about mergers and acquisitions? Yeah. Well, I think I may have been asked this a couple years ago when the appointments were made to uh, the FTC and the uh, antitrust position. And I said that there definitely will be a more aggressive enforcement, but for it to actually dramatically limit activity, there would have to be law change in Congress. And I was very skeptical about that happening. Uh, That has not happened. It's not going to happen in my view. So we've gone through a cycle in my view. Uh, You've gone through a period where there's been more enforcement, more second requests, uh, more challenges to transactions. Uh, and you know some of those transactions, uh, companies chose to not proceed because they didn't want to go through the, the pain of contesting uh, the FTC or the antitrust divisions contesting. Uh, now we've seen two or three or four uh, instances where companies have said, you don't really have a basis in law for challenging this merger, so we're going to go to court. Uh, And their record in court has not been great uh, because the law hasn't changed. Uh, And so now what you're hearing a little bit more from clients is 
I recognize that this will probably be challenged, but let them take me to court because we'll win. But it must increase the friction costs. It, it, it definitely take longer. It'd be more expensive. You have litigation you have to pay for. So is that a deterrent at all? Or it, it is. Do people just blow past that? It raises the bar, but if the bar went up uh, because of the challenges six or eight or ten months ago, it's now come down a little bit because they've lost in court and challenging them legally uh, has become a more accepted uh, practice. Ralph, it's really great to have you on. Thank you so much for being back on Wall Street Week. That's Ralph Schlossstein. He is Chairman Emeritus of Evercore. Coming up, unemployment is just a number unless you're the one out of a job. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, we saw a continued rise in bond defaults and a decided drop-off in lending, especially in Europe. To take us through the two developments and whether they may be connected, welcome back now Bloomberg International and Economics correspondent Michael McKee. Can you have too much of a bad thing? To control inflation, central banks raise interest rates, credit becomes more expensive, fewer people and companies borrow, and economic activity slows. Monetary policy is working by that book in Europe. This week, the European Central Bank reported demand for loans among companies in the Eurozone plunged by the most on record in the second quarter. Demand for mortgages and other consumer borrowing also fell. Could that be a sign the policy has gone too far? Well, banks play a dominant role in financing the European economy, and the Eurozone has seen two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. It's a different story in the U.S., where growth has remained stronger than expected. There is bank lending, of course, and it's flattened out in recent months. But the capital markets play a much bigger role here, and there are incipient signs of trouble in those markets. Defaults are beginning to rise, no surprise, particularly for commercial real estate. But a New York Fed index shows stress in the bond market is up, even for investment-grade bonds. For the Fed, like the ECB, the trick from here is to keep the pressure on inflation without turning lending stress into economic distress. David? Many thanks to Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Finally, one more thought. When knows the answer, one reason is really as good as another. An awful lot of employees seem to be getting a no when it comes to their jobs these days, whatever the reasons. It certainly is hitting Goldman. For Goldman to make cuts this steep is very concerning because the question is, when do deals come back in a way to justify these swollen workforces all across Wall Street? And big tech heavyweights. Most of these layoffs at scale are happening in the supers, right? They're happening in the metas, they're happening in the Facebooks, they're happening in Twitter. And to a degree, it's just kind of right-sizing. A fair number of people are being shown the proverbial door without a key to get back in. Who are you, man? I'm going to need your key card. And it's not just the rank and file who are feeling a bit less secure in their jobs. Think about Bob Chapek, out as CEO of Disney after only 21 months. We think Chapek failed to win the hearts and minds of the troops and the creative businesses at Disney. And we think there is quite literally nobody on earth as well qualified to do that 
as Bob Iger. Or Chris Licht being shown the door at CNN after 13 months. CNN's CEO Chris Licht has stepped down from the cable news channel. Parent company Warner Brothers Discovery says his departure is immediate and that they're scouting for a new leader. This comes after the backlash over a Trump town hall in May and an unflattering profile of him by The Atlantic. So with all the turnover out there, it's good to know that there's still one place where you can keep your job pretty much no matter what. One place that just doesn't know what a pink slip looks like. Those in higher education have long enjoyed tenure. Going back as far as the 1600s, the idea originally served to protect academics from religious prejudice, making sure they could not be removed no matter how the times changed. But this summer, all that is coming into a bit of question. As a professor at Harvard's business school was put on administrative leave after challenges to some data she used in several published papers. Next came the president of Stanford, who abruptly announced he'd be stepping down at the end of the summer after questions were raised by the Stanford student newspaper about data he'd relied on for some seminal work on Alzheimer's. The president said yesterday he would resign. Okay. So there is an interim. He he'll be, yes, he'll be leaving at the end of August, an interim coming in in September. Uh, but the reason is kind of shocking that over the last 20 years there were issues in, in research that he did not correct. And last week came word that the president of Texas A&M stepped down after furor over mishandling of the hiring of a prominent black professor from UT Austin to head Texas A&M's journalism program. Apparently because of the politics over diversity hiring. All this couldn't come at a worse time for students who've run up debt to pay those schools for their sky-high tuition. They'll steal your wallets, they'll pawn your baby shoes, they will shrink themselves down to two inches high, hide in your pocket and take that money back one dime at a time. But if your student debt won't be forgiven, maybe you should consider simply asking for your money back. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.